Tonight's episode is brought to you by Sherpa.com, SurvivalFeeling.com, and you, our listeners. I spent my whole, like, teenage years and first part of my adult life ticked off because I couldn't buy warm boots, and it come to find out it was a user error. I was just an idiot. What is up, all of you wayward souls, and welcome back yet again to the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories, for those of you who don't know, it's the podcast where we tell stories. My stories, your stories, other people's stories that I curate from various places around the internet if I think the story is interesting enough and outdoor-related enough to really resonate with you. Boy, do we have one that I'm going to talk about here. Not sure. Probably in the next episode. i got to figure out how it fits into a bigger theme so we can make a whole episode kind of generally thematic about the same thing. But it is about a young lady who did something that 99.99% of us on this planet will never, ever do. And when she got done, she dropped the mic so hard on all of her haters. It is beautiful. It fills my soul with joy and I can't wait. So that's a teaser probably for the next episode. It's probably when I'm going to bring that story in here. Um, it is wonderful, but that's what we do here. We tell stories about what the great outdoors means to us. Um, for me more specifically about what it means to me and my journey of healing and finding myself. Um, and then, you know, to that end, like here, like we're right here at the very beginning where we do what we call housekeeping. This is a good time to talk about. I have been getting some incredibly good feedback about the show, which is awesome for multiple reasons. One, it tells me that people are listening to it. It's really getting out there. But two, it tells me that it's having the desired effect. The whole reason I wanted to make this show was to share how much the wilderness meant to me in my a survival process um and b healing process because it was so valuable to me valuable to me that I felt like this can surely help other people and that 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 my fair friends is the kind of feedback I'm starting to get I'm starting to hear from people that are saying hey I just wanted to let you know I love what you're doing. It means a lot to me because I had a similar situation and I found the wilderness to have a similar effect on me as it did you. And it's just very validating to hear that another person has had that experience um, and had a few people reach out that have. Well, I mean, I hate to say it because it sounds like tooting my own horn, but I've had a couple of people reach out and say, hey, this has inspired me. I was in a place where I needed to start dealing with and healing from some things and I didn't really know how to go about it. You know, we still live in this world that has quite a stigma about emotional and mental health, um, though it's getting much better. And I've had some people reach out to me and say, say, listen, you've inspired me with what you're saying. Thank you for sharing and putting yourself out there because it's inspired me to go start trying to find myself. Um, specifically, I heard from some people about their holidays. We talked about that a lot recently because we just went through Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, and I told you guys how it's become my custom to go and take myself a little adventure, um, and kill many birds with one stone. Um, because I don't have family to celebrate holidays with. And that's tough for people. And I've heard from a couple of people specifically that said, I've started my own tradition. I'm kind of doing or modeled something after what you said. Thanks for pointing that out. 
because maybe that's what I needed to hear was you have to take responsibility for your own future. It doesn't matter what happened to you. It doesn't matter who did what to you and whether they are to blame or not. Guess what? Truth is they're probably never going to pony up and pay the bill for all the damage they caused you. The only person that has any control over their life or their future is you. You have to take responsibility for it. doesn't mean you have to take the blame for what happened. Do not say, it must have been me. I must have deserved what happened. No, no, no. Not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, what you do from here forward, who you become, what you do with your life, whether you enjoy it or not, has everything to do with the attitude that you approach it with. And that's apparently resonating with people, and it fills me with so much, gosh, it's it's wonderful to hear that I'm having the desired effect. That's why I wanted this out there. That's what matters to me, and it's awesome to see that it's finally starting to catch on, people are listening, and that it means something to somebody. For any of you out there that have stories that you might like to share, you are welcome, as we've said from day one, to send us an email at mywaywardstory at gmail.com, and I will share your story on the air with the utmost of tact and respect, and um, that's the goal, is for us all to share with each other. So anyway... I've banged on about that for long enough, as the Brits like to say. So let's kind of get moving forward. And speaking of moving, you are looking at and listening to me right now in one of the last two episodes I will ever record here in Studio 119 as it is. I am going to be moving next week, and I'm already having anxiety attacks about it, but that's okay because we'll get it done. I'm very excited about it. That's a big move for me and something that's needed to happen for quite some time. It's a big piece of the puzzle that I've needed to fill in in my life for some time and expand to a little bit larger size. Um, And I don't know if any of y'all out there in this post-apocalyptic COVID world are trying to move or rent or buy houses. God, it's hard to not believe that we're all going to die from hyperinflation. Like, this is insanity. No one's making it the right place at the right time. And finally, some relief for me came along and it's a big win. So here, not next episode, but likely the ones after you will be seeing me in a little bit different setting that may actually look a whole lot like this one because, you know, I don't know. This has worked so far and who knows what the new one's going to look like. I'd like to make it a little bit more of an interesting set, but it is what it is. But anyway, that's going on in the life of the old wayward son here. I hope all is going well with you. I hope you guys are surviving all this COVID garbage. My daughter has COVID right now, y'all, and it stinks. Poor little girl. And I have some good friends that are suffering with it greatly. It's, yeah, it's pretty crap. It's pretty crap. Sucks for everyone. Sucks for everyone. But let's move on. Let's move on into stuff that doesn't suck so bad. Um, Where are we at here? We're into mid-ish February. We're somewhere in February. Um... If you were to pronounce it phonetically, which thank God we don't, because that is impossible to say. Um, So it's really freaking cold outside. The idea for this week's episode came to me as I was running around St. Louis, Missouri. 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 I like Missouri. It's got a little bit more twang to it. Um, Delivering packages and freezing to death. Absolutely. But... The thing that I realized is, you know, I pulled out all of my search and rescue gear and I actually took bits and pieces from it that I use and have on hand in my little trunk that lives in the back of my ride, um, as we've talked about in other episodes, meant to help keep you warm, right? So I just integrated it into my big purple uniform and suddenly I wasn't freezing anymore. I was quite warm. 
even to the point that I had to start peeling layers because I started sweating, even though it was literally single digits cold outside. It was like eight degrees, I think, that day that I realized I was sweating and that was starting to work against me. Um, so it just dawned on me. It's like, you know what? We've not talked about, we've talked about a lot of things, but one thing we have not talked about is firecraft and we've not talked about different tips and tricks for keeping warm. And I think we're going to break the episode into kind of two parts. The very beginning, we'll talk about just some different tips, different tricks, different hacks, things to help you stay warm and dry while you're out there that I have learned firsthand over many years and multiple hours of experience in miserable conditions because I am a glutton for punishment, apparently. But again, like I've said before, you want to really feel like you're one with nature, one with the universe, go out there in the middle of some real weather way back in the wilderness and it is a full on sensory experience you feel it you taste it you smell it it is all over you you can't get away from it and it is quite awe-inspiring um and yes it can be very miserable but there's something it does for your soul that overrides the misery for the time being but i've learned a lot and i'm going to offer you some of those tips and tricks and give you guys some ideas of some things some of it you may know some of it you may not but again what am i here to do entertain you i can't tell you how many episodes or how many podcasts i listen to saying exactly stuff that i already know but i don't care because i'm listening to someone else say it and it helps me get through my work day right it's what we're here to do and after that we'll get into the second half of the episode and we'll probably talk about firecraft firecraft is very important very misunderstood in many ways, um, and full of overconfident people, you know, that think that they can start a fire in bad conditions because they watch some videos and they know, they think they know all about it intellectually. But I assure you, I was one of those people many years ago and learning intellectually is great, but street smarts, you got to be able to apply when the rubber meets the road, you got to be able to make it work. And until you do it, in the elements until you do it in the bad situations you don't really understand how hard it really is and i've learned a lot about starting fires it's called firecraft it goes right along with bushcraft and we're going to talk about firecraft in the second half of tonight's episode um but let's start with tips and tricks okay first and foremost one of the biggest issues you run into with staying warm that I think a lot of people don't realize, because everyone knows, right? Everyone knows you've got to keep your head warm. You lose however much, 75% of the 90% of your heat through your head. or whatever. That's true. That is true. And it's important to have a ski cap. But see, because everyone knows that, everyone has a ski cap, right? What a lot of people don't know is this right here. If you're watching on YouTube, the nape of your neck, right there in between your collarbones, that little divot, Right there at the nape of your neck. That's its, uh, that's, you know, common use term. Perhaps it's even technical term. I don't know. But it's the nape of your neck. Right between your collarbones. Right below your throat. Right there in that little indention. That area right there is responsible for so much of the comfort or discomfort that you feel when it's really, really cold outside. I learned this just by learning this. No one even told me this. I've never heard it. I assume that many people know it, but I never knew it. So I'm bringing it to you tonight. If you have air being able to reach the nape of your neck, let's say you got on a big heavy jacket, you got the right boots, you got the right pants, you got the right ski cap, you're bundled up, you're in layers, the whole nine yards. But if this is exposed and cold air is hitting you right here, it will freeze you to your core and you will shake your boots off just learned it from experience and that is a simple simple fix by a neck gaiter um 
Some people call them, I mean, God, they're everywhere now. Okay. Cause COVID we can give this example before COVID I would tell people this and they'd be like, what's a net gator or what's a buff. Okay. You guys have seen buffs. They're basically the kind of stretchy tubular things that you can wear around your neck, like a scarf, or you can tie a knot in it and wear it like a ski cap, or you can wear it up around your nose and wear it like a balaclava. Like there's so many ways you can use it. They weren't real commonplace in the past, except for, you know, people that are hikers and campers and kind of in the know about it. Now they're everywhere because they are a great alternative to a face mask because they wear around your neck and you just pull it up over your nose and bam, you've got a face mask. A lot of people are using those in lieu of face net. That is a neck gator. That is a buff. It probably has multiple names, but those are the two that I use all the time and I've heard the most often. Just get one of those. It doesn't even have to be a thick, nice, warm wool one, even though you could do that. Um, but just a regular one is awesome. A buff is expensive. It's like 30 bucks. All the knockoffs now are like five bucks. Get whatever you want. But understand, if you will cover the nape of your neck right here and keep the cold air from hitting it, get a little insulating pocket of air to catch your body heat. Guys, you, you can't know until you go try it. And when you go try it, get at me. Find me on Facebook. Let me know how it worked for you because you're going to go, holy crap, why has no one ever told me that before? Yeah, like, I don't know. I thought the same thing, but I'm telling you now, and I promise you that that alone will save you a lot of body heat. I'm not even sure if it's just like perceived body heat and you just feel cold or if your core temperature is actually dropping. I don't know any of the specifics. I just know that it will help you stay feel much, much, much warmer. Um, something else that people run into, this is something that is widely misunderstood. How to properly wear your footwear and your socks to keep your feet warm. So many people are like, I bought these boots and I went through this. Like I went through this whole research process and, and reading all of these forums and all these websites back in the day, trying to figure out why is it I have boots with like a thousand grams of thinsulate. And my feet freeze when I stand in the cold. I've got the right socks. I've got wool socks. I've got these insulated boots and my feet freeze. And what it turned out the issue was, and if any of you deal with this issue, listen closely because we're about to go over all the deets, as the kids like to say. Um, Number one issue you usually run into is you wear wool socks. You put them in boots that you bought and tried on with normal cotton socks you cut off some of the circulation to your foot. Your boot gets a little bit too tight and you cut off some of the circulation and not having good blood flow to your foot will make it really, really cold. That is a key ingredient. So number one, you have to buy your boots or your hiking boots or whatever it is you wear to fit a thick wool sock if that's what you intend to wear in the winter. Okay, that's just number one. Make sure your boots are just big enough. If you can go up a half size or whatever it is, make sure your boots are big enough to accommodate your foot in the wool socks that you normally wear out there and then be able to tighten it down to, you know, a safe snugness so that you can go hiking or whatever it is you do. But number one is just having your boots fit right. That's a big key. You need good blood circulation. The next thing is this. And this was the biggest thing I was dealing with. I come to find out what was happening was my feet were sweating. Okay. Because I had thousand grams of thin slate and a pair of wool socks. My feet were sweating. 
Do you know what happened? Do you guys know the purpose, right, of body sweat? I think everyone knows that. It is literally to cool your body. It evaporates off and it cools your body. It is a defense mechanism. It's a survival mechanism. It is in our genetic code. It is a part of the way we are biologically constructed. Sweat will save your life. It's meant to cool your body so you don't overheat. Well, if you insulate your feet too well, your feet will sweat. And if your feet sweat, then the sweat will evaporate and cool your foot. And you'll walk around like I did forever with freezing feet. That was the specific issue that I was facing. Here's how you fix that. Number one, and now there's a couple of ways. People talk about you can get those sock liners and then you wear a wool sock over it, right? I never had any luck with that. My feet still sweated and then it felt just really weird and gross because like unless you've ever had that polyester, polypropylene, poly whatever, um, elastic material of those little sock liners against your damp, clammy foot, that is one of the weirdest sensations ever. It is not comfortable. I do not like it. I did not have any luck with that. They're meant to provide a barrier to wick the sweat away straight to the wool and then wool stays warm even though your feet are sweat. But the problem is your foot is cooling from a biological process. That's the issue here. So what I have done, and it will work for you, 100% guaranteed this will work for you. You buy foot powder, like, you know, like Gold Bond. I use Desinex because I have these wonky Flintstone feet and I tend to get athlete's foot when my feet sweat, my feet sweat, they just do. It's a bodily process. It's a function and it happens to me. And I will get athlete's foot if that goes unchecked. So I use Desinex um, foot powder, keeps my feet dry. And that alone will keep you from getting athlete's foot. But it also has a little bit of athlete's foot medicine in it. So it's like double protection for my tootsies. But here's the thing, whatever kind of powder you get your hands on, and guys, it can just be equate. It can be knockoff, Walmart, great value, whatever. I mean, maybe Dollar General has it. Maybe they have Clover Valley foot powder. I don't know. But any kind of powder at all, even gold, gold barn, though it's not designed to be foot powder, but quote unquote body powder, doesn't matter. Something that absorbs moisture, you just put a little bitty bit into your wool sock before you put your sock on, put your sock on, put your boot on, make sure that you tie it loose enough, but snug enough that you're not actually losing any circulation, that your shoe fits right, and you will keep your feet warm. That right there was such a game changer for me in keeping my feet warm. And I use the word game changer, even though it's a little bit dramatic for something so trivial to be speaking about. No, I mean, it just like made that big a difference. That's been my whole like teenage years and first part of my adult life ticked off because I couldn't buy warm boots. And it come to find out it was a user error. I was just an idiot and didn't know how to use my boots. Didn't know how to wear socks properly and boots properly. And I learned. I actually dug into it finally and got sick of it. I was like, I need to fix this issue. And I learned how to do it right. So learn from my mistakes. And I bet up good portion of you deal with something like this foot powder and make sure wool socks do wool socks cotton socks are not going to get it y'all number one they don't really hold any heat at all they're too thin number two they will make your foot sweat and number three they hold the dampness they do not wick it cotton is the worst thing in the world for getting wet because it does not dry easily cotton socks and this is an honest statement a cotton sock could be a death sentence in a bad situation you get out there far enough, you get lost. Cotton socks could absolutely, absolutely be a death sentence because they contribute to hypothermia. Your feet 
are a big part of where you lose body heat. Never, ever, ever wear cotton socks. Honestly, just, just don't. Wool socks, good wool socks, the best you can afford, and they can get expensive, but good wool socks, even if you just get one pair, guys. I mean, do you hike every single day? You don't really need 15 pair of wool socks. You could get by on two or three. Like, that's what I've done for years. And, and I like smart wool. Smart wool's been great for me. Now, there are certain merino wool socks I do not like that you can buy, like, say, at Sam's Club or Costco. Costco may have the exact same kinds of Sam's carries, but you're like, man, what a deal. Just like three pair of merino wool, and merino's the best you can get, um, the best type of wool that you can get for like 15 bucks. Killer. Heck yeah, I'm going to buy three freaking packages of it, only to find out like they just suck, and I don't know why. I never was able to make them work. I ended up giving them all away, washing them up real good and giving them to the homeless shelter because they did not work for my purposes. They just didn't work. Still don't know why. Smart wool, 18 bucks a pair. Well, right now, post-COVID inflation bubble, they might be $150 a pair. I don't know. But for years, they've been about $18 a pair. And smart wool socks kill. They are awesome. They work and they do their job well. The key is this. Find the sock with the greatest percentage of actual wool in it. You know, like when you look at clothing information and it's like 30% cotton, 30% spandex, 30% what the hell ever. Look and see and get the highest percentage of wool you can find. And that was actually the real key to why those Sam's Club, Costco, big box, merino socks didn't work nearly as well as my smart wools because my smart wools are like the better part of three quarters merino wool and then a smattering of other stuff. And those other socks were like 30% merino wool and the vast majority, the bulk of the item was actually made out of other things. That was the key. The wool is the key. And most of you outdoorsmen, doorsmen and women will know that, that wool is everything. Wool gets wet. You can still stay warm when it's wet. It still will insulate your body. It wicks well. It evaporates well. Like wool, wool is wool is everything. Wool is the best. So that's really important as well. And that's when it comes down to your feet. Um, let's see. What other little tips and tricks for staying warm do we have here? Um, your thermals. Y'all, you can buy any number of kinds of thermals for anywhere in the world. Um, and I'm not, I mean, honestly, all I really have to say about this is, is this is the whole layering thing. You've heard people say you got to layer, you got to layer. That's how you stay warm. You got to layer. That's absolutely true. If you like me for many years, didn't really understand it or take it actually seriously until it started to matter. I'm going to hear to tell you and affirm that everything you've heard is true. Layering is everything. A good base layer to wick away moisture, which oftentimes I'm able to skip. Okay, I don't have a lot of trouble with that, but a good thin base layer that's made to wick, a second layer that is a layer of insulation, and then you start getting into your clothes, your outer shell, whatever you're going to wear. And if it's super duper cold and you're like going to trek through Antarctica, then yeah, maybe you need a third or a fourth outer shell. But the point is, is that all of your layers fit loose enough that they will hold a pocket of air. You can't have stuff pulled tight against your body because the way you insulate, the way sleeping bags, the way clothing, the way anything insulates is by warming an air pocket that's in between the shell of whatever it is and your body. It's that That's just how they work. That's the physics of the matter. So they can't be super tight layers. The only tight layer needs to be the base layer that's going to catch your moisture, wick it out, and let it dry away so that you can stay warm. Um, I will say this. 
everyone should at least consider buying at least once in their life a military surplus set of ECWCS Equix colloquially called, but it's extreme cold weather clothing system. And it's the military developed clothing system that if you wear it all together and put it all together and jump in their sleeping bag and slap it all together, you can get down to like minus 40 degrees. Um, it is made for the military. If you get them never issued surplus, but never issued, meaning they're not even pulled out of the cellophane. They've never touched a person's body. They're brand new. They're brand new. And usually a really good deal for them. And guys, they actually work. They just do. And I'm going to tell you that my set of Equix thermals, we call them waffles. Everyone calls them waffles because the material on the inside is in this waffle pattern are the single warmest and best like purchasing decision that I've ever made in my life when it comes to outdoor gear. Like, and I mean that, like, I'm not trying to be overdramatic. You know, I do. I tend to exaggerate sometimes about things, but they are easily, let's say it more fairly easily in the top three or four things I've ever bought that I'm like that right there was a win hands down bar none because it's been useful for many years. I've had this set of Equix for seven years. I've worn them on search and rescue missions. I've worn them to work. I've worn them so many times and they're so soft and comfortable. Like this last two weeks that I was out at work freezing to death and sub zero temperatures and having to warm up. I put these Equix on. I like didn't even, I didn't wear a base layer under it and I didn't even wear a top over it. I just put my hoodie over the Equix. They're that comfortable. They set against your skin. They're, skin. they're not scratchy. They're not terrible. Um, in any way, shape or form. And they're just really, really, really warm. They're, they're great. And before COVID, I don't know what they are now, but you could get them for about 40 bucks for a set of them. And if you compare that to Walmart, how many times have you bought at Target or Walmart or even Academy or somewhere like that, a pair of thermals that lasted you a season or two and then holes were wearing in them or whatever. I've had these for seven years and they're seven years of heavy use. Like, they like I use them all the time and they have held up. There's no holes in them. They're great. I love them. Something you should consider a good pair of those going to cost you 40 bucks. And I promise you it pays for itself in the long run because you're going to buy 10 pairs from your local, any kind of store that are not made and manufactured to those specifications. But that's important. Layering, loose layering, super important to stay warm. Um, and I just mentioned the sleeping bag thing. They do have a sleeping bag and it's a modular sleep system. It's got three components to it, plus two stuff bags. And I actually have one. I am looking to upgrade for myself personally because it is heavy when you've got it packed up and together, even without the Gore-Tex bivy that goes on the outside. You're like, that's the great thing about these. You put all three pieces together. You, you can get down to really cold temperatures and you're waterproof. You don't even have to have a shelter. I mean, it was designed for the military, right? Um, but I don't ever use the bivy, but even with the bivy out and just the patrol bag and the intermediate bag stuffed into the stuff sack, it is significantly decent sized and it weighs about 13 pounds. It's like 12 pounds, seven ounces. I, re I weighed it recently. Um, that's way too much for backpacking, for yak packing, for whatever. Now you get one by itself, like most of the summer, spring and fall, like most of the shoulder seasons in summer, you can get by with just the patrol bag. So when you start getting into winter, you need both of them combined together that it gets really heavy. So I am looking to upgrade, but y'all should know you go out there and get one of those surplus, never issued 
it's going to cost you 240 250 bucks well you know like your north face bag is going to cost you 200 250 bucks too um but it does not necessarily have the versatility it is much lighter and smaller but it doesn't have the versatility of one of these and you can get these a little cheaper depending on um the supplier that you can find them from but it's served me well very very well again right there at the top of my list of best purchases because of the amount of use i've gotten reliably out of it for many many years that thing's almost nine years old now and i still use it still use it all the time for all occasions um something when it comes to sleeping bags like when you sleep in your sleeping bags at night in super cold weather i'm assuming most of you i hope take the clothes that you're going to wear tomorrow and sleep with them in your sleeping bag like this is more of a this is less of like a keep you warm tip or trick and more of just like a hack because like anyone who's ever had to get up on a frosty frosty morning and put freezing cold clothes onto your warm body after you've just peeled yourself out of your sleeping bag that just sucks that just sucks um just put your clothes in your bag with you and it will add a little bit of insulation um and that's that's uh it's like I said, just like a little bit of a hack there, just something you should do. And I think most people out there probably already do. But just in case you never heard of that, it's a good one. Um, when it comes to hammock camping, okay, hammock camping is its own kind of beast. It gets really cold in hammocks in the dead of winter because you don't have anything under you. Like you just have free flowing air that could be eight degrees or 12 degrees or whatever, and it can get cold. And because of the way a hammock is structured, when you roll up into your sleeping bag and your little freaking warm burrito and you drop yourself into that hammock, be careful. I fell out of the hammock trying to get into it one night in a sleeping bag. And it was a whole thing. It was a whole thing. Um, thought I was going to die for a moment considered maybe that I might've, um, but it's going to get cold in that hammock, no matter how good your sleeping bag is, because you create pressure points where your butt, your back, your shoulder, whatever compresses at the bottom of the hammock. Well, you've pressed out all the air. There's nowhere for there to be a warm bubble of air, right? We just talked about that with your clothing layering. So what's important to know about that is you've created a situation where you're going to have really cold pressure points. The best way to deal with that is carrying a decent hammock blanket. They have blankets that are made for this very purpose that attach to your hammock so that they can stay with it. And it basically works as a liner that you drop yourself into in your sleeping bag and it creates one more layer and one more place for some air to actually accumulate within the fibers of the blanket. Um, so just make sure and have a blanket. When it gets really, really cold, you're gonna wanna have some kind of a blanket um, to, to use as a basically a liner for your hammock. Um, last little trick I've got. Um, and again, y'all, y'all may know a lot of good stuff that I'm just not thinking of. I'm kind of going off the hip here today. If you've got anything, come bring it to my Facebook page, send me an email, let me know. I want to hear it. And then I'll share it with our listeners, with your fellow listeners. Um, whenever I get that information. So if you got good stuff, send it my way. Just don't be condescending or patronizing or I won't. And I'll probably berate you and put you on blast. Anyway, one more little trick, Blistex. Okay, everyone carries Blistex for their lips, right? Um, I just found out recently that nobody else like apparently knows this. I told a guy at work, he's like, what are you talking about? It works like a charm. You know, when you get really cold, if you have to use your hands and you don't have gloves on, or even if you do have gloves on, your knuckles will dry out, crack, your nose at the corners where your nose might be running, the end of your nose will dry out and crack. 
Put Blistex on those too. Your knuckles, the cracks in your nose, anything on your skin that dries out and cracks in the cold, blustery weather, just put Blistex on it. It works like a freaking charm. It's perfect. And super bonus, you know, we've talked about before, multi-use items. Blistex is a great fire starter. We'll talk about that. That's actually, that's actually a great segue. That is almost, almost, y'all. That is almost like I drew that up to work out that way on purpose. Almost. Um, but it's a great fire starter. If you take a little fireproof mat or a, a weatherproof match and you shove it right down the center of the Blistex down into the tube and you light the match, the wood after the tip starts the paraffin of the petroleum of the Blistex, it works like a little mini candle that'll burn for quite some time. I don't know how long it'll burn, but it's a lot longer than that match will. The wood of the match works as a wick. The paraffin works as obviously candle paraffin. It's great. It's great. It's a great little fire starter in a really bad situation. So there's your tips and tricks and hacks that I have just off the top of my head to bring to you tonight. Again, if you've got anything to add, hit me up, let me know, and I'll share it with everyone here on the podcast in a future episode. Um, Now it's about time to take a break. We've hit our 30-minute mark, so let's take our commercial break for tonight, and I will see you guys here in about 60 seconds on the other side of this. I want to take a second to tell you guys about tonight's sponsor, Survival Feeling. Survival Feeling is a hiking brand based in Greece, and they offer an assortment of gear that's aimed towards the goal of helping you better enjoy your time outside. And that is, of course, what we are all about here at Wayward Stories. I really like this company for a lot of reasons, but chief amongst them is that they were founded with giving back to the community in mind. They donate a portion of all proceeds to organizations like the Wildland Firefighters Foundation to help support those who work to keep us all safe while we're out there trying to find ourselves. We've partnered with them to bring you guys a unique coupon code that will save you wayward souls 15% off of your order. Go to survivalfeeling.com and use offer code waywardstories at checkout. Once again, that's survivalfeeling.com and use the offer code waywardstories. And welcome back. I appreciate you guys sticking around through the ad break. So let's get back into tonight's episode. Um, Now we are going to talk about Firecraft. And I'm going to try to go a little bit systematically through this. I did make me a couple of notes. Make myself. Man, my grammar's been bad here lately. Um, Too much time on a dock in a FedEx terminal in a big city. Um, But I did make for myself some notes to kind of keep me lined out here because it would be best to go through this systematic. Number one thing I want to talk about is conceptually what is firecraft. Um, Just in concept, you know, it's like starting fire. Like you just want to start a fire. People call it firecraft. But it's so much more complex than that, which we're going to talk about here in just a second. Um, Here's the deal. When it comes to anything in this world, I am a firm and true believer. If you memorize it, you are inhibiting yourself. You are hampering your efforts and you're creating your own obstacles in the future. If you learn the concept of why something works the way it works, you have opened up your whole world. You've created a scenario where you can now be MacGyver. You can be whatever you need to be to get the job done. Because if you understand what all the moving parts do, then you can figure out, hey, I could replace that moving part that's broken, even though I don't have the right thing, because all it is is say this kind of material or that kind of material learning the concept is better than memorizing anything because it it's a much broader array of tools to have in your bag let me give you an example 
when we were in school, I don't know now. I, I hear all this stuff on the interwebs about common core math and stuff. I ain't going there because I know it's quite touchy. Um, so I don't know what it's like today. But when I was growing up and going through school, it was your times tables. You had to memorize your times tables. You know, one times one is one, two times two, da 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 da. And here's the kind of the point I'm trying to make is like you learned, you know, eight times eight equals 64. You memorized it. It was almost, um, it was almost had a cadence to it. It was almost pentantic. It was like you could go through, it's almost like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, you got that song and it helps you remember the order and all those things when you're learning, you're are young and you're learning. Well, if you just memorize your times tables, if the question in front of you is eight times eight, you're like, great, 64. But what if the question is 111 times 95? You don't know what to do because you didn't learn the concept of what your multiplication table was, what it was trying to show you. You didn't understand that there's actually a function and a process to arrive at 64, that eight added together eight times equaled 64. So you didn't understand that concept. So now you're looking at whatever I just said, 111 times 95 or whatever, and you don't know what the hell to do with it. You're screwed. You just failed the test, right? That applies to everything in life, in my opinion, or can be applied. It is applicable to many, many things. Firecraft is one of those things. I cannot tell you how many firecraft, you know, workshops on firecraft and bushcraft and different things I've taught over the years at different search and rescue seminars and this and that and whatnot, whatever. Um, and seeing people walk in there because like there's something about that. Okay. Number one, search and rescue. There's just, people are just egos. They just are. I don't know. We just are. And I don't like it. I try to be the antithetical to the image that people have of search and rescue and like volunteer firefighters and stuff. Try to be the opposite of that. Humility is really important, but we just are. People are arrogant and you get them walking into your firecraft class and they're all like, you can hear them talking to their buddies while you're setting up and they're over there talking all their big game. Yeah. One time I started a fire and da, 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 da. and then you put it in front of them, say, start that fire and they can't start the fire because what they thought was, I watched a video when the guy in the video made it look easy as heck. And I know exactly, exactly how to do what that guy in the video did. But then when it comes, like, again, when the rubber meets the road, it's a whole different ball game. You have to practice it. You have to learn how to do it. Um, so it's important to understand the concept, because if you know how fire works, how it starts, how it eats, how it breathes, what it takes to build, start, and sustain a fire, then when you're in a bad situation and you're down to two matches or you all you've got is a way to make a spark, you have a much better chance at survival. You have a much better chance of starting that fire if you understand the concept of fire because when you take away the times tables, when you take away your multiplication tables and you no longer have that and it's no longer effective for you because someone's thrown you a curveball, if you can't apply the concept and the principles of why those things worked to the problem, you're going to fail. So the concept is really important. So I urge all of you to learn about the concepts, the ideas, look into it. There's all kinds of great videos out there. How does fire work? Why is fire? We know it's a chemical reaction, but why is it? What is it? What is it like? What I mean, does it like pina coladas? You know what I mean? Like, go and get to know it a little bit like you're actually interested in it. Because knowing how to 
knowing how fire works is key to understanding how to create it and um, and uh, proffer it and continue it. So let's talk a little bit about the concept. You know, we know that the main thing and we're going to keep it low level. I mean, we're going to keep it low level here because there's no reason to get into all these weird technical terms and scientific terms about the chemical reaction. That doesn't matter to us. OK, we just need to know what it does and why it's doing that. Um, the main thing with fire is to start it is obviously the hardest part. Okay. Like I've done this. Okay. Like the bow drill thing, the fire plow, you know, rubbing two sticks together. I have started fires like that. It is stupid. If you are in a bad situation and you're down to rubbing two sticks together, I hate to tell you this. You're pretty much dead. The odds of you starting a fire by rubbing two sticks together, even for someone who is well-trained in it, are not good. It is not a 100% success rate by any means. When you're out there in the weather, things are going to be damp. The wood's going to be green. It could have been raining. It could be dew. It could be any number of things. The environment's never, ever hardly perfect, except for apparently California and Colorado, where all you have to do is look at something and think fire and it explodes into flames. Um... It's not easy. Fire plows. I remember watching this TV show years ago. I think it was called Dual Survival. And it was these two guys. One of them was an army ranger and one of them was a hippie. And it was really interesting. It was a great show to watch. But I remember one episode where the army ranger tried to start a fire because like, you know, they drop them. It's kind of like Bear Grylls or, or Les Stroud or any of those guys. They drop them into a situation. And the idea was the two of them use the resources that they had with them um, that they were pre-supplied before. Like, okay, you're playing a hiker who was stranded and all you had in your backpack was a cigarette and a this and a that or a whatever. Um, and this guy's trying to start a fire by doing basically a fire drill, but he didn't have the rope and he was having to do it between his hands and he did that fire drill. This guy's an army ranger, an army ranger and a survival specialist. And he did that until his blisters grew popped bled and he still couldn't get the fire started okay if an army ranger trained in the art of wilderness survival can't start a fire by doing a fire drill you probably can't either i know i can't like in the right conditions in a in the laboratory setting whatever in the right conditions yeah i can sit there build a bow drill and start a fire given plenty of time out there in the ish where it matters it don't work that way it don't work that way. I do, however, recommend that you do take time to try and learn to start a fire with a bow drill or a fire plow or any of those things. But for all practical purposes, it's not that practical. But I do do recommend you try it because that the actual doing of and seeing how hard it is and what you're actually trying to accomplish at the end of it will teach you a ton about how to start a fire with tools that are far easier to use than those archaic devices but it will teach you a lot it'll teach you also how important that little ember that little bit of char is it is the difference between life and death in the right situation or the wrong situation let's say it's the difference between life and death and you have to protect that ember with everything you've got and then you have to learn how to turn that ember into a bigger fire so it's important to learn it I just am saying it's not practical at all to use it in the wild. So don't depend on it. Don't 
say, I am going as light as I can go and taking weight out of my pack and taking away this big lighter and this uh, sparker and this and this and this. I don't need it because I have a string on my boot and I will construct a bow drill if I ever need it. That's very foolish. I highly recommend you don't do that. Again, it's not practical. So the concept of fire is basically, you know, the basics are it needs oxygen. It likes to grow up. It likes to eat and it likes to eat up because heat rises. Correct. So knowing the idea of that, you construct and you prep your site for your fire with all of those things in mind. You have to have ample airflow. Don't build it too dense. Don't build it too tight because it won't be able to breathe. If it can't get oxygen, it's not going to burn and build it in a manner where the fire can eat its way towards the top. If you build it in any other manner, it doesn't have anywhere to go. And without airflow, I mean, any other manner essentially amounts to some kind of a collapsed calamity that you've created. And so it doesn't have air and it doesn't have anywhere to grow. You have to give it room to grow. You have to give it oxygen and you do have to protect it from prevailing winds to a certain degree. Okay. If you have really strong winds, say out of the Northeast, you know, okay, well, let's do it like this. Let's start with, um, site prep. Let's stay systematic. As I mentioned earlier, that's a part of site prep. Where's your prevailing wind? You're out, you've been camping, you're lost, something's gone wrong, you need to start a fire. Where's the prevailing wind been from? Almost anywhere in the western United States, the prevailing wind is probably going to be from the northwest to the southeast because the way the jet stream dips. It's not always going to be that way, but generally, that's what you're going to run into. If you're in the northeast, it's coming from your southwest. Like It just depends on where you're at and where the jet stream is and the way things are basically working in the atmosphere that day. But if you have a prevailing wind, that wind has been stiff out of the Northwest all damn day. You start your fire prep where you're building the fire protected behind some kind of a short barrier. So it's out of the strong wind, trying to get a little spark to stay lit in strong wind is nearly impossible. So you have to do a little site prep and prepare and work your way. Like I say, build it, where your wind protected from the prevailing wind. One way to do that, this is not the only way, but this is one way that I found and I love very much. When you get your wood gathered up, if you can find some larger logs, even if they're dry rot, okay, dry rot rot is not great for burning, but it is great for insulating and it is great for getting stuff off of the ground. So if you find some old dead log, even if it's waterlogged and dry rot, if you will take it and make it the back wall, that's facing into the um, prevailing wind, it will serve as your windbreak and will absolutely, once your fire started over time, dry out and burn. And it will burn fast, but it'll be more coals. And that's what this is all about. You're trying to get to a bed of coals because you can protect a bed of coals and you can put anything you want into a bed of coals and it will ignite. That's what you're after is that bed of coals. So dry rot and waterlogged logs, they do still have a purpose or can be used with a purpose, but you use that as your back wall. And then if you can find a drier piece, a decent one, and you can get it either shaved back with some kind of a knife. Not everyone carries a hatchet. If you can split one, it's great. Or if you can shave it back to raw wood to kind of a flat base on one side and set that down, keep your fire off of the wet ground. 
That's like the next biggest thing in site prep. Keep it off the wet ground because heat rises and it pulls moisture up from the bottom and it will wick moisture into the fire that you're trying to to proliferate. And it will like essentially I mean, it can put it out. It can make it almost impossible to start a fire. Keep that stuff off the ground because it soaks up the moisture out of the ground. So if you can get a flat ish piece of wood, whether you have to split it or 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 shave it with a knife. Make that the base of your fire, not the ground. Log the back wall, and then you've got this little kind of base. This gives you like a shelf with a wall behind it. Now, this is how I do it. This is not like any special anything. This has just worked for me over the years. It's evolved over the years, and it's worked for me. You can use that to build your nest, which is what we're going to talk about next. Next, You put that nest down in the crotch of those two pieces of wood where they meet. Wind's coming from the other way. You're blocked from the wind. You got your nest set right down in there, and that's where you throw your sparks. Whatever you use to get that to start, that's where you throw it. And so the whole time that your nest is burning and you're starting more wood and starting to build a bed of coals, you're doing it on top of wood and backed by wood. Everything there is flammable. It's also insulated from the wet ground. That's a great way to get some site prep. And then when you have your nest going, you put your pieces of wood that you've prepared along this, like I said, wood here and wood here so that it makes kind of a basically a floor going to a wall. You can set it up like a lean to kind of like you're building a fort for your kids in the house. You can set it up as a lean to so that the wood is actually over the nest that is burning. It has airflow coming through the sides of the lean to quote unquote, and it can grow up because the wood is setting at an angle and it's catching the wood at the bottom and the wood can burn towards the top. And then you can just constantly keep feeding wood onto your little lean-to until you have a good bed of coals. So that's a good way to do site prep. Um, Kind of backtracking just a little bit, let's talk about fire prep. The fire itself, okay, that's the site. You got to get your fire off the ground, facing away or into the prevailing wind with some kind of a block. What are the things you need to make the fire? What are the tools? How do you prepare the wood? This is like the second most important part. I highly suggest carrying a good full tanged knife. Okay. They can be a little bit weighty, but I promise you the benefits outweigh the weight of the knife. Um, a good knife, a good bushcraft knife, one that's specifically designed. Y'all, y'all can, you can get some really cool bushcraft knives out there. I had one that was handmade for me a long, long time ago, and I ended up giving it to someone else. Um, but it was great. It had a full tang, meaning the blade and the handle were all one piece of metal, and then you just put wood, any kind of a handle around the base um, or the handle. But full tang, whole knife is one solid piece. And as such, he lopped off the end the handle and then he lopped off the end at the very top on the blade and created essentially a chisel so one piece of this knife was a chisel that you could hammer on the other section was the cutting edge the back ridge section had two parts to it one was a 45 45 degree angle like a sharp angle so that you could take a spark rod a ferro rod and actually spark off the back of this knife to start a fire and the other piece that was towards the front of the top of the back of the knife um the spine was actually rolled where you could put your fingers on it have hand on the handle 
fingers on the back of the blade comfortably without damaging yourself. And you could use it as a draw knife where you could actually rake wood into, well, a lot of different things. That's a big part of bushcraft. But for our purposes tonight in firecraft, that allows you to rake curly cues, shave curly cues off of sticks and all these different things, which we're about to talk about. Um, but a good bushcraft knife, that is a good tool to have. You can do it without a bushcraft knife, but it does make things a little bit easier. Um, your actual tools. We've talked about this before, but we will reiterate it again here, but I'll try to be succinct. Like I started this part of the episode with this half of the episode. Do not rely upon your caveman skills. Do not trust in the fire plow. Do not trust in the bow drill. Like if you are counting on those, you are basically resting your fate upon your testosterone and your unearned confidence. Like that's all I'm saying. Don't count on that. Okay, so what are some decent tools to have? Number one, Bic lighter. Like I said, we're just going to keep it short. Bic lighter. Have a Bic lighter and a little bitty Ziploc bag or something like that. Just a Bic lighter. Just one. Just have one. That's one. Remember, two is one. One is none. You got to have multiple ways to do this. One Bic lighter because why not? Like, don't get hung up on this. I got to be Bear grills. I got to be Les Stroud. I got to be whoever, man. I got to do this the manly way. Like, you know, do you know how many men have died on this planet because we're stupid? Because we have to feel like we have to do things the quote unquote man, manly way. More, more than we, we like as, as a gender, more than we like to admit. We're stupid like that. Don't rely on that stuff. Use a lighter. Take your lighter because it's the easiest way to start stinking fire. It's the easiest way to sustain a little flame to start a fire. Secondarily, take like a sparker, like a ferro rod, something to throw sparks reliably Buy a good one. Um, like I said, the bushcraft knife can be a great way to go. Optionally, you could get a torch lighter, like a cigar lighter. Those are really great. If you can get a torch lighter, the point with a torch lighter is though, it's not much different than a Bic in that you know, it, you could refill a torch lighter, but you're not going to have a can of butane and you don't want to carry around a can of butane. Again, two is one, one is none. Have more than one of everything, but a torch lighter is a great way to get a fire started. Um, there are many, many ways to get that initial spark, but the initial spark is the single most important thing outside of having a good nest prepared. You have to have a good nest prepared to accept that spark and actually turn into a flame. If you have a Bic lighter, You've already got the flame. So we just go straight to building a good nest and prepping your wood. But basically, those are the tools that you need to have. A way to make fire um, through mechanical means. Ferro rod, a Bic lighter. Make sure and have some windproof matches too. Those are three things that weigh next to nothing and will fit in your bag in the size and space of not much more than probably even like a cell phone. Tiny, lightweight, there's no reason to keep any one of those three things out of your bag. And all three of them in and of themselves could save your life. You've got your backups. All three of them work great. And they all have different things that they offer. Um, like I said, with the matches, you can put it into your chapstick and you've got a candle. If you got that little candle, you've got a sustained flame for probably two or three minutes, if not longer. That's more than enough time to get a fire started if you do your wood prep properly. So let's talk about your wood prep now. Number one thing to know, back to what I said at the beginning in that, the concept, in the concept of fire, the thinner something is, the less dense it is, the less mass it has, the easier it is to ignite. That is one of the main concepts of getting a fire started that I want to beat into your brain. 
think of it like this in real world terms, in functional terms, if you have a stick that's a big around, as big around as say a cigar and you just apply a lighter to the side of that stick without taking the bark off or anything, how long will you sit there before you think that stick actually catches? Any of you that have ever started fires in any setting? No, that's going to take a while. It just don't work that way. Wood doesn't like to burn. That bark on the outside, you know why? That bark is full of sap and moisture and green stuff to protect trees from fire. That's a part of their like protection. Like it's, it's how they're created or how they evolved. It's a part of how they work. It's a protection device. You're going to get the bark off at least if you can split the wood. And everyone that's ever built a fire knows split wood burns better than whole logs, right? That's understood. This is a scalable thing. That is the macro. You split a big log, it burns easier. It translates to the micro. When you're putting together your little bitty twigs to start your fire, you got your nest made out of whatever it is you've made it out of. You can use cedar bark because cedar bark will you peel off the cedar bark it's full of that cedar um god what is it but it's full of the sap of the cedar tree you can rub it in your hands until it becomes almost a powder it's so thin and it's so shredded they make great nest and they're filled with a flammable substance from the start but whatever you make it out of whether it's cattails or that or something you brought yourself or paper that you had in your backpack or napkins that you shredded up that happened to be in the bottom of your day pack Whatever you make that nest out of and you get it nice and fluffy, not compressed into a tight little ball and you get it ready to go, you've got to be able to make the fire that's going to burn so quickly through that nest be there long enough to catch the wood that you're trying to start on fire. It's, it's a process. The smallest stuff, the larger stuff, the even larger stuff until you can burn an entire log, right? That's how this works. So you get that nest prepared, however you do it, like with whatever you use. The key is get it as thin with as little mass, little density as possible. Get it shredded up. Get it where there's plenty of ways for air to get through it. Just a nice, soft, fluffy little nest. And then you take your twigs, like say that cigar sized piece of wood, for example, and you take your survival knife or a hatchet if you have one. And you work it in to the very end. You don't have to sit there and hack that like you cut your finger off. You take, say you have a hatchet. You actually put it with the grain of that particular stick and you push it in to get it started. And then you just whack it on the ground and that stick splits. So the way you split large logs, do that as well with your kindling. Do it as well with your tinder. Split everything. Break everything down to where there is raw fiber in the wood exposed. That's how you are going to start a fire. Everything needs to be exposed. Even if you can just get the bark off. If you just have a knife and all you can do for your twigs and your sticks and whatever you're trying to burn is simply shave the bark off into a little bit of raw wood, that is far better than trying to burn it with the bark. This is again talking about starting the fire from scratch. Like this is the point where every step matters. This is the point where every little thing matters. Once you get a good bed of coals going, I don't care what you throw into the fire. It's going to incinerate it. Once you get a really good bed of coals, it doesn't matter if it's got bark on it. It doesn't matter if it's got a fireproof suit on. It'll burn if you leave it in there long enough. We're talking about at the point where you don't have coals. 
you're trying to reach the goal of having coals. So everything matters at this point. The nest being prepared properly is essentially everything. Being able to supply a spark to that nest or an open flame if you have, say, a lighter, which is your best case scenario. And then having that nest have the best possible chance of starting the wood you're trying to burn and the best chance of wood starting in the short amount of time that a nest will burn is to have that wood split and have it shredded up as much as you can and broken down as far as you can and then you lay it up there in some kind of a configuration whether it's like I said a lean-to or a TP or anything you do on the back side of your prepared into the wind behind your windbreak area that's the best chance you're going to have. That's the best chance you're going to have to start it. And once you get those first little twigs to start, your first little split twigs, you let them burn for long enough to be good and engulfed. And then you start feeding a little bit. This is super key. This is super key to not go too fast. If you move too fast and pile too much on, it will collapse on itself and you will starve it of oxygen. It will essentially put itself out. Move slowly. Like we're going to say your life's on the line here and you're getting this fire started, don't be overzealous. Don't push it too hard too fast. You have to move slowly and let that thing start to build that bed of coals. And you feed it more of those twigs, more of those twigs. Give it some time before you ever start to try to add a larger stick, like the cigar size stick, let's say, and you split a bunch of those up. Don't start with those. Wait for a minute. Start to establish a bed, a tiny bed of coals on your little prep site. Then you lay a couple of them up. You make them longer so that they will stand taller as a little quote unquote lean to or teepee above the stuff that you're building the coal bed with. They'll start to dry out from the heat and they'll prepare to catch and you just keep feeding your nest. What's left of your nest. You keep feeding the little twigs to it. You want to over prepare for all of this. Like, I think I'm beating, I'm belaboring the concept. I think I'm beating it to death. But you want to over-prepare for this part of the process. You want a big old nest? Make sure and have about five of them, okay? Prepare way more than you think you need. Twigs, prepare way more than you think you need. The larger sticks, way more. Make sure and over-prepare because once it gets going, you have to protect it. You have to proliferate. You have to proffer. You have to, I mean, you got to baby that thing until that coal bed is in so good a shape that you can start adding actual logs to it. That's the goal that you're trying to get to. And it all starts with the concept of how fire starts, like it needs less dense material. It wants to burn up because heat likes to rise and it needs oxygen to come in from the bottom or the sides with all of those concepts in mind. And you knowing that you need to prep all of the wood in the nest so far in advance or like so much of it in advance to be ready for it, that's going to maximize your survival chances. That's going to maximize your success rate at getting a fire started. And it's way the hell easier than rubbing two sticks together, I promise you. So keep your testosterone in check. Keep your uh, <laughs> keep your unearned confidence under your hat. Swallow your pride. And like go out there to survive, not to impress. That's probably the biggest thing that I could say about starting fires. Um, Other little things that you can do. Once you get your fire started, 
drag up all the wood you can find, everything that you can find. Like it's a great way to keep yourself moving too in a situation, say where you might be lost and you're waiting to be found. It's a good way to keep your morale up. Give yourself something to do. Gather wood. Bring it around the fire. Don't set it so close it'll catch on fire, but definitely set it around the outer ring and it will dry out from the heat of the fire you're burning. And that's how you work logs in. You just get you a little system going. It's almost like a bucket brigade, but the opposite of dry out the wood before you put it on the fire. And then you move the next row of wet waterlogged wood or whatever up to that place. So it will start to dry out. Um, there are multiple other things we could get into, but I think we've kind of covered the bare basics of Firecraft and some ideas about it. Um, tips or tricks, though. Let's do hit that real quick. Almost forgot. Anything that's made of petroleum will burn. Anything that is oil-based, essentially, will burn. That means anything in your bag that is plastic or rubber will burn. And it will burn way longer, way hotter than anything found in nature. So for example, say, I forgot to mention this, but I've said it in other episodes, hand sanitizer over like 67, 70% alcohol is fire gel in a bottle. It is go-go juice. And it's a great way to start a fire. You should always have a little bit of hand sanitizer in a tiny bottle. Well, that tiny bottle is plastic and is lined with hand sanitizer, even if you've used it all up. If you're in a survival situation, that's the asterisk this. I'm not sitting here saying burn your trash all the time. Not what I'm saying at all. Don't misquote me. If you're in a situation where you need that fire to start, and I mean it's like serious you need it to start, once you get that nest going, once you start to get it together, once you've used up all your fire gel in your little hand sandy bottle, Take the lid off and set your hand sandy bottle in there and it will burn longer and hotter and you can add more wood and get that coal bed going way faster. Again, a lot of people might not like that I just said that, but it's life over limb here. If you're going to die or if you're in danger of being hypothermic and dying, there's no way that I'm not going to burn that little plastic bottle. Anything in your bag, duct tape. We actually carry tiny rolls of duct tape with us because they are good for fixing things, but they're also great for catching magnesium shavings and then striking and starting a fire because they're made and they're petroleum based. They will start, you got a little wick and you can set it into your nest and it will help get your nest going. There's so many little tips and tricks guys. And if nothing else, like there's no way I could cover here tonight everything that there is to know about how to start a fire in the wilderness, in the rain, in the water. Like we didn't even talk about pine knots and we should. It won't take me 30 seconds. Pine knots. If you're unaware of pine knots, pine knots are basically the parts of the roots of dead pine trees that were either cut down or died naturally. And over time, all the sap that's left in the, the base of the tree will actually congeal into the roots and then it will harden and it will stick around forever. Those things, pine knots, hard as a rock because they're basically hardened pine sap, which is the best fire starter in the whole world. So if you come across the base of a pine tree and you see those old rotten things sticking out where the stump used to be, you're looking at pine knots. Dig out the hardest, solidest pieces of that wood you can find and you've got a piece of pine knot and you've got one of the single greatest ways to start a fire in the wilderness you will ever come across i watched a friend of mine's grandfather literally in a pouring rain in a pouring rain during a week where it had never stopped raining a fishing camp on broken bow lake 25 years ago 
start a fire and I thought he was the god of fire. And then my friend's dad told us later, he's like, he used pine knots. He likes to go hunting, but he's getting old and he don't like to drag deer out. So he doesn't really hunt deer anymore. He hunts pine knot and he'll drag a big old freaking stump of a pine tree out of the woods when he comes out. Pine knot is that awesome. So anyway, I got off track. There are a million things we could go over, but I'm hoping if you took anything away from this episode, it's this, how absolutely important it is to know how to start a fire and how that fire works in concept, not just in memorization of what you saw in a YouTube video. Knowing the concept, practicing it every time you go camping, just for fun. Practice it with the sparker, whatever, the ferro rod. How important that actually is. If nothing else, I hope I just raised your awareness of it's really important to have the things you need and know how. That way you can maybe go out there on your own and find other podcasts from other people or YouTube channels. Watch multiple people do it. Watch multiple ideas. See multiple tips and tricks and hacks. And then put together your own system for how you get fire started and the things you want to carry with you. I hope that you guys at least took some inspiration out of this and maybe just something to give you a jumping off point into. I really do need to understand fire. I need to understand how it works. I want to understand how it works. And you go out there under your own guises and motivations and learn as much about it as you can. And that's what I'm hoping happens from tonight's episode. Um... If you guys like what you're hearing, please, by all means, leave us a rating and a review. Um, For everyone that has left ratings and reviews, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Sincerely, they mean a lot. I appreciate you guys joining us again this week. Like, I'm loving doing this, and I hope you guys are enjoying listening. If you want to share your story with us, mywaywardstory at gmail.com. Anything else, go to waywardstories.com and you can get access to, you know, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the things are all linked up over there. We got photo galleries, got a couple of blogs, got a link to my new Sherpa creators page where I'm putting out written travelogues on different things that we do here in Arkansas. And I'm really proud of that page and excited to be writing for them. You can check all of that out over at the website. Again, waywardstories.com. Um... I think it's going to about wrap it up for this week. I appreciate you guys. And I hope to see you again here in two weeks. Until then, stay warm, go out there and be good to each other.